the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Do you have confidence in the United States of America? And later, what does it require to love our neighbors? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. So glad that you are with us today on this uh, July 5th post. July the 5th. July 4th. yeah, it's been so fun to have you with us this week. We've had some great guests. I think it was, was it yesterday? Right? No, it was earlier in today's show. No, no, no. It was. I'm very confused about the days of the. We week weren't here now. Monday. We weren't here yesterday. We that's weren't what's here. That's you. why I'm confused. Earlier this week, we were joined by uh, the U.S. Volunteer Engagement Manager at World Relief, Tadun Ofolabi. She talked about her story of becoming a U.S. citizen. And how we can welcome the strangers. If you missed that, go back and catch up on our podcast because I want to have a continued conversation about immigration. Uh, Russell Moore recently posted something on Instagram that I'm going to play for us where he talked about how if you love America, you should actually love immigrants because they are the most committed to hard work and the American ethic and that kind of thing. Let's go ahead and take a listen to what Russell Moore had to say. The people who are fearful of uh, immigrants uh, causing some sort of bad change in American life really don't have very much confidence in the United States of America. The people who come to the United States of America are often the people who are the most committed to American ideals. It's what it's what drew them here. They're the people who are the most committed to hard work uh, because they they were willing to leave home and to come and to work uh, sometimes three, four jobs. They're usually the people who are the most committed to family structure because they're they're seeking a better life for their for their children. Okay, Brian, generally, what do you think about that? it's so hard to separate like the politic policy yeah, of things yeah. and the humanity of things. I think as Americans, but especially as Christians, we should be drawn to people who have had to struggle. We should be drawn to mm. people who uh, are hardworking and all of these yeah. things. I've told you many times, uh, if you ask me what are the policies that I least understand, I mean, Matthew Sorens has helped us a lot. But if you ask me what is the – uh, the governmental policy that I least understand of all the highly debated ones, uh, immigration's it. Like, Absolutely. I don't really have an opinion about what the country should be doing. Right. Uh, like, I don't know what's right and wrong, but I do know that there are people caught in the middle of it that mm-hmm. great organizations Wait. like World Relief and others yeah. are helping with. And the church needs to step in and say, regardless of what we believe the United States of America should be doing at the border or whatever else, we are going to love the vulnerable who are here yeah. because that's yeah. what Jesus called us to do. Yeah, that's good. I'm so glad you brought that up because over at womenofwelcome.com, they have a great – like. 
common questions about immigration because it's so complex and so confusing. Uh, This is kind of like an FAQ almost. And I wanted us to share some of these answers because I found it helpful because I'm like you. I don't know so much of this conversation, but I do know that Jesus cares about the refugee and the immigrant. And so um, I... We're just going to go through some of their Q&As here for the next couple of minutes, Brian, but th- this is a big one. They they ask and answer this question. What's the difference between a refugee, asylum seeker, immigrant, and migrant? And I think just knowing those definitions helps us. The, uh, here, Let me just share this. Refugee, someone has been forced to flee his or her country because of a well-founded fear of persecution on account of their nationality, race, religion, membership in a particular social group or political opinion. Asylum seeker, someone who has fled his or her home country and upon arrival in the country where they hope to be allowed to stay, they profess a fear of persecution in their country of origin on account of specific factors such as their nationality, race, religion, membership in a particular social group, but whose refugee status hasn't been legally adjudicated yet. An immigrant is someone who leaves his or her home and moves to a foreign country with the intention of settling there. A migrant, someone moving from place to place, either within his or her country or across borders. Isn't that kind of a, a helpful thing to know the different distinctions? It is. And because, uh, again, Matthew Sorens at World Relief has helped us a lot with this. There's when we have the immigration talk, there's the people who leave their country moving to a foreign country and intend to settle there. And then there's the refugee. I got to get out of here because it's it's my life is on the line or my kids lives are on the line. Yeah, right. And I'm being I'm being persecuted for my faith. I'm being Mm -hmm. persecuted for my race or my nationality or whatever else it might be. And those are two very different things. Now, it's yeah. not to say the immigrant isn't coming here because of danger or perceived right. danger. Right. But a lot of times the way you hear it is the immigrant is coming for a better life, the mm. something better. The refugee is coming for protection. Like I'm mm-hmm. coming to be protected. And that's, you know, how a country deals with those two things is very different. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Here's another common question. Um, <laughs> this one's going to be hard to unpack, but – what about our U.S. immigration policy? I think this is a huge one. How can somebody legally and permanently move to the United States? Let me do my best to sum this up. There are four primary ways that a person can gain lawful permanent residency in the United States. You might have referred this to as getting a green card. This is interesting. An easy way to think about these avenues are blood, sweat, tears, and luck. Blood family-based immigrants with a close member of the U.S. can apply to be a lawful permanent citizen. This process can take more than 20 years. Sweat is employment-based. Some employers can sponsor immigrants. Tears, that would be refugee or asylees, a small percentage of those coming because they're fleeing persecution like we talked about. And then luck. The Diversity Visa Lottery, this lottery randomly selects applicants from underrepresented countries who do not have as many nationals living in the U.S. So that even just that, I know it's probably an oversimplification of the process, but don't you think that's kind of interesting to to know those four yeah. ways and even For to sure. have, it, have it like explain like that blood, sweat, tears and luck? I met somebody within the last two months, I think, who actually 
get they got in through the lottery the luck no and, way uh, they were describing how big of a deal that was it was many years ago um and so that that is it and again like the sweat one, the employment-based one, the question becomes, do you come in legally or illegally? And how do you mm-hmm. get in? And what we get it. Like, these are the things. I think the biggest thing, and this is why we keep having people like Matthew Sorens on or um, I forget the woman's name who was on, on uh, earlier. But yeah, Tadoon. There you go. Is the church's posture I don't think becomes defined by the national policy. The church says, how can we help those who are vulnerable? How can we help them, you know, be here, all sorts of stuff. And then it's the government's job to say, here's how we're going to let people in. Here's who we're going to stop. Here's how many people we're letting in. Here's what Mm. we're doing to those people who get in illegally. Like Mm. those are two different things. And so a lot of times we, we conflate those, but the church has a great opportunity through places like World Relief to step in and and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Yeah, let me end with this, what they say at Women of Welcome. They're talking about what the Bible has to say about immigration. The Bible has a lot to say about immigration. But they say, if, they, if you've never made these connections in Scripture before, you're not alone. Be assured we aren't reinterpreting Scripture. We're just looking at God's Word as our highest authority and that God has a lot to say about immigrants and how we treat them. But then they say this, of course, immigration is also a political issue, and Christians will not always agree about what the best policy or law is. One thing we should all agree about, Christians are called to practice biblical hospitality towards refugees and immigrants. They also say you can find out more from our friends like Matthew Soren and others at the Evangelical Immigration Table. All right, Brian, coming up next, we're going to talk about my husband's recent sermon. What does it mean to actually minister to our neighbors? We're going to talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Brian, we're not going to take a listen to a Brian Fromm sermon. We're not going to take a listen to an Aubrey Sampson sermon. We are going to take a listen to a Kevin Sampson sermon. My husband preached a couple weekends ago about loving your neighbors and how that actually plays out. I actually wasn't in church that Sunday, so I have not listened to this sermon, but I did. You're selling yourself out. I was was not going to sell you out. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. I don't think it's a sellout. I think it's the reality of two pastors and two preachers in a family. I was preaching at another church. He hasn't listened to mine either. I'm sure. I was going to say the lack of sellout (laughs) is the the issue is not I was not there. The issue might have been I did not go back and listen. (laughs) I did not go back and listen, but I read the thing. So I feel like that's pretty close. So, Kevin, uh, we're in a series right now at our church on neighboring and what it means to be a good neighbor. And so, Kevin um, is talking about kind of neighboring like a garden and how we don't, you know, you Kevin's actually growing pumpkins and corn in our backyard right now. So, I'm guessing this is where this story came from. But, you know, you don't, you watch every day, you stay in a place, you wait for a garden to bloom, you tend to it again the next year, like you don't plant and then the next day something pops up. And so he's talking about what it means to pick a place and stay in that place and how that really matters when it comes to loving our neighbors. So let's go ahead and take a listen to part of Kevin's sermon. I mean, we get so, sometimes we're so enamored by the prospects of upward mobility. And, and, but what if God is really just calling us to a sense of just rootedness and settledness right where we are? Right where you are. 
Plant gardens and eat what they produce. I mean, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to stay a while. This is a sense of settledness in a particular place. A sense of paying attention to the ground. What God is doing in just the the nooks and crannies. Just the dirt of of our lives. I mean, this is is what it means to really engage in, in the neighborhood. Then it says, Mary... And have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. It's like, it's like don't, don't, with, don't withdraw. Now, it doesn't mean you have to get married. It doesn't mean you have to have children. It, 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 but it, what it's just saying is, look, look, this, make this space. Where you're at, where you're settled in, just create a legacy there. Invest yourself into this space, into the people around you. I mean, be ordinary. And just, just do the things that like ordinary people would do where, wherever you're at. And, and don't withdraw, but, it, but really like pursue a legacy. I mean, if you're going to be in a place and you're going to have sons and daughters, you're going you're gonna to think about What's going on in that place? You're going to care about how that, you know, you're just going to care about that neighborhood in, in a whole different kind of way. Okay, Brian. So, so again, this idea, I think, of staying rooted in a community. And, I, I, you know, I, I feel like there was a season when just in American life, we stayed in places more. And then there was a season where in American life, man, you could move, you could transfer jobs, you could go wherever you wanted to go. We saw a little bit of, of this rise again during the pandemic because suddenly people no were doubt. working online, right? And so, hey, if my job is remote, I can live anywhere I want to live. I can be travel anywhere I want to travel or because of their frustration about things going on in COVID, they move. Like we're we're kind of a transient society, but I feel like more and more I'm hearing pastoral voices like my husband's and like others saying, what if the most powerful way to love your neighbor and be a faithful Christian is like to pick a place and stay there? And I don't think we ever need to be legalistic about this, but I think there's some wisdom in that. What do you think? Uh, there's certainly wisdom in that in in being transient. The one thing is I, something we've figured out recently that I didn't see coming in my own life was uh, so much of our um, connection to a neighborhood or a town is through our kids, at least in my oh, life. Oh, interesting. Through uh, Park cool. District. Park District mm-hmm. baseball or yeah. uh, school, the elementary schools, which at least mm-hmm. in Downers Grove, the elementary schools in Downers Grove don't bus, at least ours, because everyone in theory is close enough to either walk or get a quick ride oh, or whatever. Wow. Uh, and so those were the people mm. that I feel like we were always around. Uh, whether they lived right by us or they lived five minutes from us, like they were the people. And now that my kids have gotten older, um, 
it's just not that way anymore where it's like, you know, the baseball team I use for my son, right? It's no longer community based. Now it's people from all these different communities playing Yeah, our church while in a community, you know, people aren't from right around it. It's yeah. around uh, even the schools we've, we're sending our kids to, or you know, my daughter in college or, and so that's been a little odd. Like I actually had the thought the other day, we live in Downers Grove. We've lived here since, 2009 Mm -hmm. love the town but i actually went and walked around i I wasn't doing it like in this sentimental way i was just literally wanted to go for a walk on a nice day and i went to mccullum park it's this park where there's all these soccer fields and baseball fields and the park and tennis courts uh kind of in south downers grove and it struck me that we used to be there all the time for Mm. games for this for that and I hadn't been there in a year. Wow. Like I, it's wow. because it's – and so I do think – I totally agree with what your husband's saying. There's yeah. a great book called The Art of Neighboring. Uh, I mm-hmm. forget who the author is. It's a wonderful book uh, that challenges us in the same general way, literally uh, – drawing out do i know the people who literally live right around me right right uh, my actual neighbors but, yeah but that is what as he was talking and as you were sharing what it's about it did strike me how you go through seasons of yeah, that's like interesting mm-hmm. and a lot of it for us as young parents suburbanites not even young parents anymore uh, uh, so much of it's tied to your kids and it's really weird that way because then when your kids move to the next thing there are people that i used to see at elementary school or through park district sports i used to see them all the time yeah. that quite frankly now that i think about it i can't remember the last time i saw them because yeah. it's just how life changes, and so kind of who's my neighbor i think starts to change a little that bit over time my neighbor starts to change yeah that's that's fascinating that's yeah that's really interesting to think about the different seasons of life and how that might change your neighboring efforts for us we're like you know we're so local like our our i don't know like our, our kids friends live near us and so i'm yeah. curious even as even as our season changes, will some of that change or not? Because the families are located right, like literally right around us, you know? So that yeah. might, that's really, really interesting. We actually had a a funny conversation with a neighbor, next door neighbor recently, who found out that Kevin was going back to school. And I'm not sure why this tells you what she thinks about Christians, but she goes, I better not find that one day you and Aubrey have like a 1-800 number that people are calling <laughs> into. <laughs> And Kevin's like, what do you think who, about the Christians? Like, who does that anymore? Who does it? So what would cause you guys? It's obviously a really high bar, but what would that bar be that says we're going to go? Like, yeah. we're going to leave. Like, do you have you guys ever ta- thought about that or talked about that? Um. Or is it a non-negotiable right now till at least our kids are? Yeah, I think for us it's a – well, I, I would say – I'll be really honest. For Kevin, it's a non-negotiable. Like, okay. like we are in West Chicago. God has called us to West Chicago. Like we will love this city and see Jesus here, you know? For me, I'm like, well, if a church at Orlando calls me, can we pray about <laughs> can we pray about it? Like I haven't told many people this, but I got offered a job at a another church in a different state, you know, maybe maybe a year ago. It might have been last summer to come be their teaching pastor. And I, I brought the idea up to Kevin and he was like, 
no like he didn't even he wasn't even willing to pray about it like he was just like (laughs) no god has called us to west chicago i actually appreciate that conviction i'm someone who grew up or moved a lot as a kid moved from place to place to place so this idea of neighboring is like okay we're gonna stay in a place and that's actually gonna be good and healthy for our kids and we're gonna put roots down here but i will say the beauty of being in the same place and you know this brian because you've been in downers grove as long as you have there are people that like Four years ago, we were walking with, they walk away from God. They walk away from the church. They come back when they're in a season of pain and heartache or tragedy. Or just like, and they come back to you because you've been in the same place. And yep. there is something powerful about building relationships in a place and watching what God does simply because you've stayed faithful. Now, if God calls you to move, you go, like you listen sure. to the spirit of God, sure. period. You're not legalistic about this, but there is something beautiful about like being sort of a, a, a faithful, stable person, right? Where God has you and watching in time as God uses that. In Especially ministry. now when, like you said, people don't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there is something nice about that. Yeah. All right, Brian, coming up next, we're going to tackle a small, non-essential, very easy, easy question. What is hell? I'm going to have mm. you answer that, Brian, when we come back. I love to. <laughs> You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Brian, we are going to tackle a simple question. Very simple, very easy, not complicated at all. What is hell? But before we talk about hell, here's a quick question for you. Who do you think believes in hell the most, baby boomers or Generation Z? So I'm cheating here. I actually read the article you ah, gave us. So ah, uh, I would have guessed baby boom. I'm just being honest. I would have guessed baby boomers. And it's fascinating that that's not the case. I would have guessed baby boomers too, but it says only 18% of boomers said they believe in the concept of the land of the damned, a whopping 32%. So half almost of Gen Z said they do. This is interesting to me, but their belief at, for Gen Z doesn't stop at hell. They did not throw in a belief in heaven, much less God. Further, they continue to declare themselves irreligious. So there's some confusion here, right? Like Gen Z has some spiritual confusion, generally don't believe in God, but they believe in a life after death, especially in in the bad way of hell. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. So Gen Z apparently doesn't believe in God and maybe not heaven, but believes in hell. Any, any just guesses. I don't. That's strange because because the one that's stumping me is less that they don't believe in God, but believe in hell. It's that they don't really believe in heaven, but believe in that's the stumper here. Yeah, because I don't know how you separate the two. Like, what's the to the point that I would believe them if they said we believe in heaven, but not hell. Right. The good people. Uh, to use their terminology, if you're a non-religious person, the good people live forever with God, but the bad people just go away. That's a belief set that many, right, that some people right, hold. Right. I don't. I honestly, I, I wish I had an answer for you. I don't have an answer as to why somebody would say, "Yeah, heaven, I can take it or leave it." God, not really, but yeah, hell's a thing. Is yeah. is strange. I don't know if that speaks to their psychology towards. Uh, kind of a self-loathing. I, I honestly don't know what that is. Part of me wondered if this was, if this is, I mean, again, I don't know why I'm totally making guesses here, but part of me wondered if it's like a sense of like bad people go to hell, like a, yeah. almost a sense of justice. There's this generation's naming evil, seeing corruption, okay. seeing toxic power in the church, seeing a spiritual abuse. And so they're, they're willing to say bad people go to hell. They're not willing to take it as far as like, 
other people go to heaven. Good people right. go to heaven. I, I wonder. I mean, I just very, very interesting. It's not even okay. really it's not even really tied to God. It's tied yeah, to maybe justice. Not, like justice or retribution, something like divine retribution. Okay, so let's talk about what is hell. Yep. Go. <laughs> you just want me to go from there. Uh lots of theories. Lots uh, of theories. So the most standard historical one is that hell is a place. Mm-hmm. It is an existence. It is mm-hmm. a it is a destination uh, that we as Christians would say is not based on are you good or are you bad. It would be yeah. based on are you in Christ or not in Christ. Yeah. Uh, that it is the destination. It is the result of sin and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's not like. Oh, you're good. You were good enough. You go to heaven. You were be- You weren't good enough. You go to hell. It's the the de- the line of demarcation is uh, righteousness of Jesus and calling upon the name of Jesus. Now there are very famous theologians. Uh, was it John Stott or was it J.I. Packer? I get the two confused. One of those two, I think it was Stott, held a famously annihilationism, which said, "Yeah, right." Uh, Hell is much more of imagery in the Bible yeah. uh, and that those who are in Christ will live in eternity with God uh, in heaven. And those who do not are the annihilated. They go away. Yeah. They cease they to exist. Disappear. Yeah. They don't have eternal life ultimately at they all. They cease either. to exist. So all yeah. that remains are those who are in Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's called annihilationism. And you yeah. can look it up. There's major theologians who have and who do believe that. That's not some sort of fringe idea. Right. Um, there are others who just speak of hell as separation from separation God. From so it's God. a, yeah, it is almost a normal existence like we live now, but completely remove God. So that is hellish. That is, yeah. yeah. There's no beauty. There's no right. goodness. Uh, no redemption. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, I have been raised. I tend to, but I could be convinced otherwise. But I could tend to. I would tend to believe the Orthodox view that's that sees hell as a destination. That a sees place. hell as yeah. Uh, a, a reality. Um, but all the theories of hell, I think, all have one common thing to them, mm. and that is separation from God. Yeah. And so all yeah. of them are terrible. All right. of them are to be avoided. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of where I land. Uh, more what is the reality of hell? Um, mm. And it's clear in Scripture that it is it is earned through the judgment of sin. Like it is yep. what is deserved. Yeah. Yep. And it is clear in scripture that the way to quote unquote, avoid hell is through the life, death Jesus and resurrection Christ. of Jesus. Yeah. And so that's why we believe in not only reason, but that's, that's the hope we have in Christ, but it's also yep. the reason we share the good news of yep. Jesus. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That was a good sermon on hell there, Brian. Well Thank done. You. you gave us several classic views. You gave us, I could speak of, of hell. Jesus. I'm all about yeah. hell. Yeah, you're all about hell. All right. Well, it is a complicated conversation. I think the hope there is Christ. So thanks for sharing that with us, Brian. Coming up next, we're joined by author and speaker Michelle Van Loon. She's going to talk about staying in church after experience church abuse. We'll uh, talk with her when we come back. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. We are thrilled to be joined by author and speaker Michelle Van Loon. You might remember last week we discussed one of her Christianity Today articles called How We Stay in Church 
matters as much as why. And so she's joining us to unpack that article a little bit more along with some of her other work. Michelle, thanks so much for being here today. I am so glad to have some time to hang out with you guys. Yeah. And you're a you're a former Chicagoan now in Florida. And so I'm jealous. You're living my dream jealous. life right now, Michelle. <laughs> I don't know. It, the humidity outside Ooh. today here is like 117%. <gasps> Come is, on. It's so, so gross. The moment I walked outside, my glasses fogged up. Uh, are you serious? <laughs> I'm okay. serious. Just like the, and we don't even keep our air conditioning all that cold yeah but honestly it's just i mean everybody's got their weather in chicago right Um, right there was smoke from canada so we're all we're all dealing with something yeah that's right that's right that's good okay well again this article you wrote we just loved how we stay in church matters as much as why it came out on june 23rd Mm -hmm. of christianity today you can find it there tell us why you decided to write this michelle Well, it's a question that I have wrestled with myself. I am a survivor of um, true, what would be considered spiritual abuse, Mm. um, abuse of power by a leader who was covering up his own sin. And Mm. um, in the words of that are often used in these circumstances, through me and my family um, under his bus in order for him Mm. to maintain his position. And um, that, that whole experience really set my life in a particular direction. Since then, I've been on a church staff. I've worked at a seminary. I've attended seminary, Mm. but that experience, um, continues to affect the way that I engage with my local church. And I've also walked alongside many, many survivors. And Mm. uh, I think the language, the titling even of the article, the way that it's being shared on social media that uses the terms church hurt. Yeah. And sometimes um, feel minimizing to some survivors. I've seen some comments on social media about that. And I understand that. I think that the editors made the choice to use that language in places to be able to invite more people into the conversation rather than to just limit it to people who've experienced um, clergy sexual abuse, abuse of power, Mm. um, a church split, um, Mm. other kinds of things that, can really be a line of demarcation between right. innocence and um, where we are, where most yeah. of us. Are. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Michelle, help people who haven't gone through that understand like how going through abuse or like you said, church hurt colors the rest of your life and how you view church and why that, because people might be thinking, well, just go find a new healthy church and it's all better. So help people understand that, right? Help people get that. Wouldn't that be amazing if that were the case? Um, But the, the wounds, the scars that heal in, in place of where those wounds were for people that are willing to hang with the process can um they color the way that we engage with 
local church wherever we go. If we yeah. leave that church, which most people um, do, there are people that stay in a church where they've been hurt because of other relationships or ministry opportunities. But um, often people move on, but they move on with the experience that they've had. Yeah. And it can be baggage. It can be lots and lots of baggage. But that baggage is there also to some degree, um, hopefully, to become wisdom, to mm. become an early warning system, um, all of that. So the language in the article isn't really aimed at people who have had an interpersonal conflict with somebody over what kind of Kool-Aid to serve at yeah. school. <laughs> right, right, right. right. So, um, interpersonal conflicts, although those are at the core of a lot of where that hurt happens, but they're also, in many cases, um, reactions, responses to systemic issues in a yeah. Yeah. And Michelle, you know, looking at the people who have experienced church hurt, church abuse, um, one of the things that you talk about is really specifically naming that church hurt. Can you talk about why that's so important in this process? It, it absolutely is in part because, um, it's a thing that really happens. My, initial experience happened in the 90s so mm. we're talking about now uh, decades of time yeah. Yeah. since then um although there have been other things that have happened since then as well but that initial um experience there wasn't a lot of material out there there wasn't um a body of counseling that addressed religious trauma some of those things. So I was left to think, well, it must be me. There must have yeah. been something that I did. And it affects your relationship with God, ultimately. Hmm. You know, these are God's representatives. This church is God's family. All of that language hmm. ends up um, really muddying what it is to be to understand what it is to be a part of the body of Christ. And mm -hmm. so naming it also helps you find that you're not alone. Yeah. Um, this is hard. Your life and your faith are never going to be the same. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing. This is mm -hmm. part of what your story is with God. And it also is a way of saying, this doesn't have to be the end of that story. Yeah. But your story's going to look different. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And Michelle, uh, I don't want to be too formulaic or simplistic here, but if someone's listening and they just can't get back, they can't even make that first step. What's, for lack of a better word, what's step one? What would you encourage that person to do who's just really struggling right now? Yeah. Well, um, sometimes you need to take a little bit of a time out. A lot of people do after they've been hurt, partly because they may not know where to go or what to do next. Trust has been violated. Yeah. And um, sometimes it is just a matter of 
that you need to step back and get a bigger picture. You may need to seek counseling. I have sought counseling. I have worked with a spiritual director for many years now. Mm. Um, And all of those components, faithful friends that will call you out when you're um, drifting from pain into bitterness Mm. um, to help kind of guide you back. But naming it is one thing. And then um, recognizing that this is a process, just Mm. like forgiveness is. It's a process and it isn't easy. And sometimes maybe the church that you need to be a part of is just a small group or another Christian friend that can just journey with you for a while until Mm. your, your soul kind of has some clarity about what a next step looks like for you. That's so good. We've been talking with author and speaker Michelle Van Loon about an article she wrote for Christianity Today called How We Stay in Church Matters As Much as Why. Michelle, you're the author of seven books. Where can our people find you, connect with you, and find out more about what you're writing? Like I say, I have a lot to say. Um, (laughs) Seven books. Um, My website is michellevanloon.com, two L's in Michelle van like the car loon like the bird um and i write a lot about second half of life spiritual formation which is where this um piece came out of a lot of conversations Mm. with older um believers who are tired who've been beat up and hurt Mm. oh so good michelle thanks so much for being here with us today thanks michelle thanks you guys We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.